This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Loopcast. I'm Chelsea Damon, and today we are going to talk about global and political order, and we've got two great guests on the show to discuss this. The first one is Seva Guninsky, and he is an associate professor of pol- political science excuse me, at the University of Toronto, so he's coming in from Canada, and his research focuses on globalization and how war shapes democracy and democratic reform. He is also the author of the book Aftershocks, Great Powers and Domestic Reform in the 20th Century. Then our second guest is Paul Musgrave, who is also an assistant professor of political science at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. And his research focuses on how domestic institutions shape the U.S., along with how foreign policy and U.S. foreign policy shapes international order. His work has also been featured in numerous scholarly journals and he's appeared in numerous press outlets. So thank you, gentlemen, for being on the Loopcast. Thanks both uh, for having us. Wonderful to be here. So, Seba, why don't we start off with your book? Because your book is what has shaped the idea of doing this podcast. So why don't you tell us how it came about and what were your inspirations? Uh, Inspirations, that's a very lofty word. Uh, Basically, I was looking for a topic for my dissertation, which is how a lot of first books come together. Uh, And one thing I still tell graduate students to this day is if you're deciding on a topic, think about topics that make you a little bit uncomfortable. Uh, Not in the sense of personally uncomfortable, but sort of um, intellectually uncomfortable in the sense of, hmm, this seems interesting, but I'm not sure we're thinking about it the right way. Or uh, there's a tension in the explanation that doesn't seem right to me. Something like that. This is you know, what we call puzzle-driven research. And I read uh, The Third Wave, Huntington's book, uh, The First Year of Grad School. And that's the sense I had from reading that book. Uh, he didn't invent the term democratic wave, but definitely he popularized it. But also, he doesn't really offer any sort of theory of institutional waves. Uh, if you read the book, the argument is more like, okay, well, here is a number of possible factors. Uh, Catholic Church, uh, economic development, diffusion, whatever. And this leads us to a number of democratic transitions. All right, that's the argument. And he says explicitly, look, this is not a theoretical approach. You know, I'm not offering a general framework. I'm just describing some factors that I think are important. Uh, and reading that, I thought, well, you know, this is a recurring pattern, right? This is a pretty stark one. And why can't we think of some general framework that can help explain at least a part of this, right? Because if you look at the, how democracy has evolved in the 20th century, the spread, the retreat of democracy, the expansion, the contraction, it really has been marked by these dramatic bursts of regime change, right? And these sweep very quickly across national borders. And we call these democratic waves. So it's really a surprisingly specific pattern. It's not gradual evolution. It's not a random walk. Uh, but it's also not this unstoppable rise of democracy. It's really these moments of upheaval, cascade, that shaped evolution of regimes. Uh, and not just democratic waves, by the way, but uh, more relevant maybe for today, waves of fascism and waves of communism. You know, fascism in the interwar period, well before the war, uh, and, and communism in the postwar period. 
both of these also spread through these cross-border surges, right? And not just through conquest. So the question I started with was why waves? Uh, and if you look at the literature on democracy, especially when I started writing the book, I didn't really see that much that explained the causes of these cascades. Uh, in comparative politics, we have some really good theories of democracy, very powerful theories. And they focus on domestic attributes, economic development, civil society, class relations, stuff like that. Uh, and, th and that makes sense, right? If you want to understand why a country became democratic or not, you look at what's happening inside the country. But at the same time, these kinds of domestic theories really can't tell us much about waves of regime change, almost by definition, because waves transcend national influences. So understanding the origins of these waves means you have to sort of step outside the state and focus on the international system as a whole, and that's really what motivated the book. Uh, an argument I make in the book, just to, to sort of really boil it down, is that there's a very deep and powerful link between episodes of hegemonic shifts and these cascades of institutional domestic change. Um, in other words, there's this particular kind of systemic volatility, uh, what I call hegemonic shocks, that drives these waves, both democratic ones and autocratic ones. And that is marked by the abrupt rise and fall of great powers in a global system. And these shocks have consistent, even predictable effects on how domestic regimes spread or retreat. Uh, the rise of a hegemon creates all sorts of unique uh, powerful incentives for reform. And this reform reflects the rising power's institutions. We see it after World War I, we see it during the Great Depression. After World War II, and when we have two rising powers, we see these twin waves, one towards democracy, one towards communism. And most recently, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, we see the huge democratic wave. Uh, and in the book, I outline the mechanisms through which these happen. Uh, I don't want to go into too much detail because, as you can tell, it's, it's a big historical question, but I talk about the various mechanisms of hegemonic coercion and inducement and emulation uh, that all sort of work together to, uh, to link uh, these hegemonic shocks to democratic waves. So I want to bring Paul in to this conversation as well. So I'll throw out a big question to both of you just to get the discussion starting how do we understand these waves and what we would consider global political order? Yeah, so I'll um, take a crack at that, and then Seva can come up and clean up all of my mistakes. Um, I should say that if you haven't read Seva's book, you really ought to. Uh, I think it's one of the better pieces of scholarship that have come out in the past uh, two, three, four years, however long it's been. Uh, and it's also a book that's been unusually timely because it really raises the question of how we understand the imbrication, the relationship between global and domestic political orders. And I think that Seva has done an amazing work. If anything, he's underselling his contribution here. If you look at the book, if you look at his footnotes, it's, it's full of really deep engagement uh, with things like diffusion theory, with understanding, demonstration effects, and learning as a really great uh, idea. And it's also something that appeals to me because when I think about global order, when I think about U.S. foreign policy and the sorts of things that I study, um, I find myself being drawn to mental universes, to theories and ontologies that really look a lot like uh, Seva's uh, depiction of how change happens both at the systemic and at the domestic level, because I see there as being a lot more malleability, a lot more creativity, and a lot of possibility for change that traditionally, I think, 
political scientists who are working in their own little fields, comparative politics and American politics and international politics, uh, have really viewed as being static. And one of the biggest aftershocks, I think, uh, of the Second World War was actually to create a kind of world made new. And there's a reason why we all keep reaching for this tired metaphor of the post-war liberal order. And I think it's that politically this was a moment where there was a strong compulsion to believe that there was a blank slate, to believe that 1945 setting up the United Nations organization, setting up American leadership was going to produce a sort of end of history, an international order that would make these sorts of global conflicts unthinkable. And that, as one of its most minor effects, also helped shape how uh, American, how Anglophone social science began to see the world and began to divide it up. And uh, I, I think that this is actually a retrograde step in a lot of ways because it neatly partitioned international relations from comparative politics, from the politics of advanced industrialized democracies, and people got very busy, not with uh, puzzle-driven research, the kind that Seva is discussing, but with a very narrow, paradigmatically prescribed work um, that was not all that tremendously interesting. I, I think that what we're finding now is that those intellectual tools were well adapted to a world of stability, uh, but as the cornerstone of that stability, you know, the presumption that the United States is going to be engaged and activist um, and, you know, at least pr publicly professing all the good things that we've associated with the U.S., uh, as that assumption goes away, we're really being thrown into a, a much different land of of assumptions and realizations about what is possible in politics. And one of the things I like about Seva is that it's a book that tries to explain uh, the democratic waves with the realization that we could have equally and, and in fact did see fascist or communist waves. Um, and, and I think that that's a really great starting point for thinking about global order in a time of change. That actually brings up a really interesting question that, that is always in my mind, and especially being in the United States, we promote democracy a lot. But when we consider political order, and a lot of the time, at least from our Western view, we associate that with democracy, does democracy really work in every situation in every region? I think, Seva, I think that you should probably, I want to hear what you have to say about that one. Well, listen. First of all, Paul, you have to go on tour with me because that was a very that was a very sweet thing to say, but uh, also very succinctly put things uh, that I uh, probably spent too much time in the book uh, talking about for, for pages and pages. Uh, and uh, Paul is absolutely right. Unfortunately, the book has become a bit more relevant today than than I intended when I was writing it. When we think about the decline of U.S. hegemony uh, and the forces of reaction against uh, democracy. Uh, so there are just two things I want to say on, on the global order question. Well, there's tons of things I can say on the global order question, but at least directly responding to the previous conversation is, uh, you know, you think about democracy. Is democracy the right thing for everybody? Democracy on a historical scale is right for nobody, right? It's a very unusual way to govern people. We take it for granted. We've internalized the fact that democracy is the best. But I mean, on the scale of human civilization, it's it's a blip, Right. Aesop, uh, Aesop has this fable, the frogs who desired a king. I don't know how familiar you guys are with uh, Aesop, but uh, essentially the frogs, uh, they ask Zeus for a king. They live in anarchy, right? And he says, all right, if that's what you want, and he throws them a log. But, you know, the log cannot rule them. 
the log sits there. And the frog said, well, that's not a ruler. You know, that's not going to help us get out of the state of anarchy. He doesn't use those words, but, you know, that's, that's the idea. So Zeus says, all right, I'll send you a stork. And he sends them a stork, and the stork eats all the frogs. And point is, this has really been, politically speaking, the choice for most of human history. Uh, sort of this oscillation between chaos and despotism. Uh, democracy is unusual, is what I'm trying to say. Democrat, democratic waves are unusual. Uh, and even the metaphor of waves uh, that I talked about suggests almost a, sort of a, a natural force, like a powerful natural force, which I think is misleading because, you know, one of the points uh, of the book, if you look at the 20th century, and this is a century where democracy really does make its way, even then its success depends on the ability of these powerful democratic states to weather these big crises and, and to emerge as winners in these crises. And when democracies fail to do so, as during the Great Depression, as Paul mentioned, uh, opinion shifts very quickly against it. Uh, public opinion, elite opinion, just as quickly and just as naturally. Uh, I remember when I, when I was writing my case study on the Great Depression, uh, the, the 2008 crisis hit. And it was pretty amazing, actually, to, see, to read the newspapers and, and, the, and the journals and many of the criticisms that were being made against democracy in 2008, and still are made today, actually, are very much the same criticisms that I read uh, from materials from the 1930s. Again, including from very respectable people, that democracy is too sclerotic, it's, uh, it, it serves the oligarchs, uh, it is too rigid, uh, too much deadlock. So we see a lot of that today, too. Uh, these parallels are not just from history, they are still with us, I think. So the advance of liberal democracy, it's not just a series of triumphs, right? It's not this, you know, it's not this historical morality play in which good beats evil. Uh, really, it's been a function and the product of the outcome of these very grim struggles, very uncertain hegemonic struggles. And uh, I think one lesson is that uh, democracy is fragile. It's not based on internalized norms or the fact that it's inherently appealing, but it's based in some ways in material success, which creates its own ideological success. Uh, and secondly, more to the idea of you know what's going on now, can we think about the intersection of regimes and global order? One thing that really came out for me in the book, which I didn't expect as much, is you know when you think about America's contribution to the global spread of democracy, it has not been through efforts at democracy promotion. Uh, that record is pretty abysmal. You know, it's it's uh, that record has always been inconsistent and hypocritical. But uh, nevertheless. U.S. power has played a huge role uh, in promoting democracy around the world, mostly or basically through its status as a model worth joining, as a side worth joining. Um, and so as a result, I think uh, the decline of U.S. power, and I'm talking about relative decline, uh, which I think is pretty inevitable, uh, will have these negative consequences for the appeal of democratic governance as a model of emulation, if history is any guide. Uh, and so long as that share of global power declines, that hegemonic appeal does fade a bit. Not to mention that there are certain factors perhaps accelerating this uh, decline in the form of uh, certain U.S. presidents operating right now. So it's, it's an open question. Uh, uh, you know, I think some of these parallels are still very much with us. I, I think that that's a really great series of discussions. Um, I, I think I'll go a little bit back closer to what Chelsea was asking and kind of build on what Seva was saying. Uh, in, in one part, you know, is democracy the best way of governing the world, of governing countries? Uh, you know, I got my PhD at Georgetown and, and we had real Jesuits there on faculty. And so 
I want to answer that question with a question, which is, well, what do we mean by democracy exactly? And I think that there's kind of a bundled set of practices that we all associate with democratic institutions. Uh, But I'm not sure, as Seva kind of hinted at, that this is actually even a set of democratic practices that would have been recognizable to Aristotle or Plato or to people in the Republic of Venice, um, you know, during periods when those were democratic. Uh, and I, I think that there's a lot to be argued for the idea that, you know, if we were to count human history and give every human who's ever lived, every human society that's ever existed a vote, um, democracy is by far the least likely, the least popular outcome. I mean, it is something that even if you look at the majority of certainly pre-early modern and going down a long ways, uh, European political theory, there's not all that many voices standing up for democracy. Um, You don't even get a lot of people arguing for democracy as a second or third best alternative. Um, You get a lot of arguments for rule by the elites. You get a lot of arguments of rule by uh, epistemic elites. You even get some arguments in favor of rule by uh, theocrats, of rule by monarchical descent. Um, But the arguments for democracy tend to be pretty scarce until you reach an age where democracy has been or is becoming hegemonic. Um, And even there, a lot of practices that we take for granted in terms of democracy, they're really historically contingent and unprecedented. Uh, It's not just if we look at democracy and the number of democratic governments and we, we can see that democracy is kind of a blip. Well into the 20th century, the idea of mass democracy uh, as a real thing that people were willing to tolerate, uh, that elites were willing to tolerate, that's historically very, very new. You know, the 1920s, 1930s at the most recent. And political scientists, I think, sometimes lose track of this when we turn to our data sets and when we turn to, you know, they could be sophisticated like VDEM, they could be simple like polity. Um, but you know, there's a lot of lying to ourselves going on about the degree to which democracy has been or is prevalent as opposed to forthrightly democratic forms of governance. Uh, and I think the classic example, but it's worth bringing up here, is post-war Japan. Uh, if you look at the policy for data set, you'll see that very quickly after the occupation, Japan achieves a full democratic rating, a 10 on a negative 10 to 10 scale, and it's been a 10 forever, um, you know, since 1950, which is better than the U.S. is doing right now compared to uh, other um, rankings. You know, they've actually revised the United States to have had some democratic backsliding. Um, But that's ridiculous, right? Like Japan until 1993-1994 was a single-party system. I mean, it's it's only democratic in the sense that elections were held and you didn't know who the nth member of the diet was going to be. Um, and so you know, when we think about what democracy is and, and how global order affects the different sorts of political orders that we find uh, domestically, um, I think that there's been a lot of Uh, reading our own press releases, both as political scientists and as Americans, uh, in thinking about how deep and how solid some of those democratic attachments have been in real time. Um, So in just, uh, you know, I I think this might even be a generational thing. Uh, For those of us who lived through the Iraq war and saw democracy promotion yoked to a very undemocratic and in many ways, anti-democratic agenda, 
even if we are very committed Democrats in practice and in principle, which you know certainly I am, Seva is. Boy, democracy promotion as agenda as an agenda has furnished a lot of rhetorical weapons to a lot of people who are pointing them in the wrong direction. Well, first of all, uh, I, I, there's a number of great uh, comments here. The one of the biggest problems is for many political scientists, history starts in 1914 or 1945, depending on how good the data set is. Right, 1991, and they think it's 1945. All right. <laughs> Well, the targets will keep shifting, but, uh, you know, on Japan and polity, you know, look at the U.S. too, as yeah. as I'm sure you know. When does the U.S. become a perfect democracy? I think it's like 1872 or something like that. Uh, and then they, they retroactively just recently lowered the score for the Nixon years. Uh, I, so it, it's a mess. Which is ridiculous, I mean, right? Like, of all silly. the presidents, Nixon is the one that proves that it was a plus nine or plus ten. <laughs> so compared to, compared to 2017, I mean, you know, who has better functioning institutions? So, so I don't even know if you're being sarcastic. I wasn't around back then. <laughs> I mean, uh, well, I mean, you know, the fact that he didn't serve out his second term. I mean, no, it's true. You so you, you're an optimist on a Nixon case. Uh, I think that's that's yes, fine. Optimist on Nixon, pessimist on Trump. That's my bumper sticker. Okay, okay. <laughs> I'll accept that. But and if you look at even cases like forget the U.S., look at cases like Russia and democracy scores. Okay, this is a case I know a little bit about. Uh, so if you look at Polity's score for Russia since 1991, it starts in the middle and it goes up and then levels out and go. And if you look at Freedom House scores for Russia, it starts in the middle and goes down. So depending on which index you use, you get two diametrically opposed uh, visions of the evolution of the country. And again, there's justifications for this because of certain disagreements in the way that two measures operationalize democracy, but it is a huge mess. And, you know, even things like democratic peace theory, which rely on these codings so much, I think uh, there is a lot of wishful thinking, uh, as Paul said, uh, that, uh, you know, it's always been the case that democracy have always been peaceful. My concern is, you know, I think a large... uh, portion of, of the empirical uh, finding that democracies don't fight each other can be explained by uh, the U.S. managing the system, sort of a hegemonic management argue, argument since 1945, uh, where the superpower essentially mediates these conflicts. So again, uh, I think uh, in the long term, in the, in, the lo- in the grand scheme of things, uh, uh, it is not something we should take for granted that democracy is something we grew up with, and that democracy is something that we will always have. I mean, uh, this is maybe opening a can of worms, but for me, it may, maybe that the democracy autocracy distinction will not even be the defining distinction of the 21st century uh, for reasons that I could go into. Uh, but I, I think it, it may be, you know, in the worst case, a unique historical moment. Yeah, I, I think that that's actually something that's really important to hang on to, which is all of our measurements about democracy and autocracy come from you know, essentially the case of the 20th century. Um, and now a decade or two of the 21st century. But that's a period that's really marked by a lot of other distinctions than domestic regime type. And, you know, if we look at Japan, if we look at Korea, um, both Koreas, if we look at, um, you know, a whole host of Western European countries, even core ones that are nominally democratic, that certainly feel democratic year to year. Uh, But, you know, France between 1955 and 1965 underwent tremendous constitutional 
change, um, which shows up as a simple blip um, on the you know polity scores and on other democracy rankings. And I, I think that in a lot of ways, you know, in the 1990s, we had the other distinction, which was between governed and ungoverned sta- uh, spaces between states and uh, failed states. Um, and I think that that terminology also got harnessed to some weird and wacky D.C. policy objectives. Um, but it was also kind of getting at something that's a little bit more um, important, a little bit more fundamental. It's something that Seva mentioned several minutes ago, which is the distinction between states that have order, political communities that have order, and political communities that don't have uh, the expectation of everyday or day-to-day or, or month-to-month levels of order. And, you know, those are not the sorts of observations that we've decided fit neatly into spreadsheets. But I will tell you, I've lived and visited polity negative 10 uh, countries and have felt physically safer than I have in visiting some parts of, you know, plus 10 um, spaces. And, you know, that expectation of order, there is something for it. And, you know, in many ways, that's the sort of uh, distinction that, really does seem to play to a lot of other processes that uh, maybe the democratic-autocratic distinction isn't quite so good at getting. Uh, my only comment uh, that would disagree, because we had, we should open this up a little bit more, is I'm not sure that there's anything particularly attractive about the Chinese model of governance um, or even something that's really been packaged for export the way that the common turn um, or other rival states and rival ideologies packaged their uh, materials for export export during the 20th century. Um, this is not, you know, the China of Mao, where there was a sort of mass line or, or popular mobilization. Um, I'm not sure what it is that the Chinese model, whatever that might be, would offer to anyone except for, you know, the very richest, most elite folks uh, in a given society who probably want to park all their money in New York anyway. This is, uh, by the way, a surprisingly hunting, uh, Huntingtonian discussion uh, <laughs> since, since Paul brought up uh, political right. order. Uh, I, oh, that, I, that brings up some other distinctions that we're not going to uh, engage with. No, it's you know it's funny because he is uh, sort of ritualistically roasted every six months on PolySci Twitter. Yeah. Uh, but nevertheless, <laughs> you have to give him credit. He's wrong in interesting ways, uh, yeah. like in a way that generates uh, discussion or, or pushback. Uh, but but on uh, on the idea of you know, who wants to live like China, which I think is, is true, although I think more and more people would say, well, you know, compared to the U.S., who knows? I was reading um, a recent defense of uh, Fukuyama's argument about the mm-hmm. end of history, which is a much better book, frankly, than uh, than Huntington's book, though they're both sort of despised by certain people. Uh, and the, the the person was making the argument that, look, you know, you know, he gets a lot of shit, but there's still no conceivable ideological rival to liberal democracy. Right, uh, China, Russia, what is it, ISIS, n- nationalism, whatever that is. There's no uh, sort of comprehensive set of ideas that really present a, a real rival to liberal democracy, right? But at the same time, you know, it's hard to make that statement when you look at what's happening in leading democracies like, uh, like Great Britain, like the U.S. Uh, and even if democracy doesn't face the sort of ideological rival like fascism, like communism, those were real sort of coherent ideological rivals in some sense. It's still facing in a sort of uh, what I would say uh, an organizational rival uh, in the form of the one-party state, and this goes back to what Paul was talking about. Places like Japan, a one-party state is an institutional form in which there's a single party, and it has either a legal monopoly uh, on power or sort of de facto dominance. Uh, it suppresses, co-ops other parties. 
Uh, and it's a very ideologically flexible notion. Uh, it's ideologically thin. You can have a technocratic one, a populist one, an oligarchic one-party state. Uh, you can have a left-wing one-party state, a right-wing one-party state. Uh, you know, capitalists can live with it. They, you know, they don't love it, but they can live with it. Uh, some party states, some one-party states, the the party itself is weak. Um, I'm thinking of Russia, for example. In other one-party states, it's strong, like in China. Uh, so it's it's very flexible. It's not a transnational movement. It's not a coherent set of ideas. Um, so it's not like we're, we're seeing a diffusion of alternative ideology, as was the case with fascism or communism. But again, maybe it's time for us to start thinking in those uh, 20th century ideological terms. Uh, it's it's an, uh, The one-party state is an attractive organizational model, I think. Uh, and, and if that's the case, then the battles of the future are not between democracy versus communism or, or capitalism. It's it, The rivalry will be between the multi-party state and, and the one-party state. And even one-party states are occasionally seem compatible with what we call quote-unquote democracy, as Japan, uh, as Paul mentioned, or Ireland or South Africa. Right, so it still it means democracy may not face an equally coherent rival, but that doesn't mean it's it's a weaker rival. In some ways, it's more flexible. I mean, think about what. Go ahead. No, I I, I find that this is a very compelling line of argument, and you know, kind of bringing it back to the question about the sources of uh, domestic political change and its relationship to global political order. I mean, in one way, if you take Fukuyama the book, not Fukuyama the bumper sticker, but the actual book. You know, yeah, I think that's it's pretty valid, and nobody's out there really making a strong case against democracy as an argument. You have ISIS, sure. You have traditional Catholics, sure. You, there are there are fringe movements, but a lot of the contestation that we see, for instance, from Nigel Farage and other people who are embodying their critique of liberal democracy, is precisely a sense that you know power has ebbed away from the people, and we can take it back through elections. I mean, that's a very democratic critique of existing democratic arrangements. Um, and that's one reason why I think that people find it hard to pin down what's going on, um, which becomes much easier when you look at their actual goals, which are, of course, to restore traditional hierarchies or neo-traditional hierarchies of power, wealth, and prestige. Um, but those are organizational forms. They're not really ideological, except in a very desiccated meaning of ideology, which is just you know a program for who gets what and why. Um, and and yet that's a tremendously flexible arrangement. And I think, yeah, if there's a China model out there that people might want to import to their own countries, it would be one in which political debate, political divisions are really subsumed within the kind of closed system, the closed ecosystem of a single party Precisely. Um, in, which, in which you might have factions. But, you know, I mean – one of the things that I see running through a lot of commentary on Twitter and elsewhere is that a lot of Americans don't particularly love the fact that you have two options that you get to vote from. And if you press them really hard, you know, on left and right, who's the party that you'd be willing to lose to? Um, and even when you think about you know, 1945 and the actual establishment of that old order, uh, that was a lot of the Democratic Party writing its policy preferences into an international constitution. Um, and you know, that was a period in which Democrats were triumphant, um, in which the Republicans were a forgotten minority for most of the middle of the 20th century. Um, and there's no expectation they would win. I mean, the United States functions not quite as a single party state, but legislatively comes a little bit closer than anything we've experienced in our lives. 
And I just have to wonder if part of the frustration that we see with uh, contemporary politics all the way around is that nobody has a compelling ideological alternative, but a lot of people feel like there's a better deal they could get. Um, and they're groping for a way to express that um, even as you know, the United States, through capacity or willingness, is no longer able to, to sustain the liberal bargain of the post-1989 order. Well, I think that's exactly right. I mean, uh, the way I think of the liberal order is it's an anti-sovereignty order. Yeah. Uh, and when I say this, you know, people will say, well, either, of course, everybody knows that, or they say that's a stupid thing to say. It's not anti-sovereignty. So, so what I mean by that is simply, you know, the rules of the global order are you don't always get to do what you want on your own territory. That's That's it. If you mistreat your people, we will intervene. We will take away your sovereignty. We call this humanitarian intervention, right? If you restrict trade flows, we will punish you with sanctions. We call, we call this free trade. Uh, if you want IMF money, you have to restructure your, your economy in pretty fundamental ways. We call this conditionality. Um, if you're a holder of capital, right, the liberal order is very explicitly an anti-sovereignty order. There should be no borders for capital, that sort of thing. And again, this is supposed to be a good thing. This is not supposed to be an insult. Being anti-sovereignty is supposed to be a good thing because it allows us to live in a society of states, a civilized society, a term I'll use ironically here. You know, the analogy is you know, the modern state domesticates your base human impulses. Right? This is what Norbert, Norbert Elias called the civilizing process. Right? You're less free. You can't go murder people in the street, but you can live in a society. And likewise, the post-1945 order is supposed to do that. It's supposed to domesticate national sovereignty, to get rid of the excesses of sovereignty uh, that resulted in the xenophobia and the mercantilism of the 1930s. That was the initial impetus for the post-1945 order. People forget it wasn't communism. Uh, Jim Goldgeier has a piece in uh, Washington Quarterly last year that was really good that he argued, look, it was basically the impetus for the post-1945 order was fear of the 1930s, yeah. uh, not communism. But along the way, you know, this is pushed too far for many people. And a lot of the backlash, as Paul says, we're seeing is precisely to this, to the idea of being casually anti-sovereignty, to the idea that the national community is a reactionary notion, uh, that it's a tribal notion, which in many ways it is. You know, I consider myself pretty rootless. You know, I grew up in the Soviet Union, then I lived in the U.S., now I'm a Canadian. But I certainly understand why people have a craving for belonging in some kind of tribal community, especially if they feel disoriented in whatever way. Uh, so if the liberal order, and again, I hate that term, but let's use it because we all understand it. So if the liberal order is, is to survive something more than an elite project, it will have to somehow reorient itself away from this deeply ingrained anti-sovereignty bias. I'm not sure if that's possible or how it would happen or even if that's a good idea, frankly, but but it, something uh, something will have to change. On that note, what would both of you and each one of you can take this question depending on who wants to answer it first, but what would you say is a successful creation of political order, whether that's on a national level or global? So uh, let me draw for something that I'm working on right now, which is uh, the creation of an American constitutional order uh, in the 1790s. And this is something that folks have written about from time to time. David Hendrickson has a book, Peace Pact, from 2003, uh, where he talks about this idea, although it's, I think it's a little under-theorized, I think it's a little uh, uninteresting, but, you know, 
in in terms of its explanation. But you know, if you go back to 1785, 1780, um, a lot of folks in what would become the United States that we know today really thought that these were colonies that had had one big share of experience fighting the British, but didn't really have all that much in common. And uh, sovereignty resided with the states. Each state could make big decisions on its own. The Articles of Confederation, for instance, um, left dealing with Native American polities to each state individually. And this is a time where, you know, the frontier ran through Virginia, ran through New York. So we're talking about states really conducting the establishment of uh, political order for the benefit of their citizens within their territory, you know, big ungoverned spaces in upstate New York or in Western Virginia or, or North Carolina and so on. And you know, there's a real question about whether there is any way to make those political communities, to make those states get along, or whether eventually the Articles of Confederation, which everybody knew was not delivering on what it had promised, would fall apart. And you'd have uh, what people described as you know, James Madison and Alexander Hamilton and others described as the establishment of a European style international system in the United States. You know, Virginia going its own way and predating on Maryland, Massachusetts going its own way. And like, I, I don't know, like maybe actually having pirates to prey on South Carolina as it reentered the British Empire. And these are the sorts of scenarios that people it's weird. They never quite wrote them down, but if you read between the lines, that is exactly the sort of thing they were thinking about. Um, and it's a political order that was really fragile. And eventually that went away after the Constitution, after the assertion of the central government's um, authority in battles against tax rebellions in western Pennsylvania, in battles with Native American polities along the frontier, um, you know, the U.S. government eventually found itself able to exert its will more or less throughout the entirety of its territory. And at this point, we don't even think about that as an international arrangement because the U.S. government has been so wildly successful uh, that it now is just taken as being a domestic institution. But that's not how people thought about that. Um, you know, there there's a lot of stories that look like that where um, – you know, a really successful constitutional order, a really successful political order becomes almost indistinguishable from how we just conceive of domestic or local or even municipal government, something that's, you know, the normal state of affairs. Um, but it's not really. And, you know, just as democracy is a relatively recent development, so too are the wide-scale adoption and establishment of relatively stable, territorially-based uh, governments at all. Um, and so, you know, the extension of what we call the Westphalian model, and I'll just skip the footnote, you know, qualifying the dis discussion of Westphalia, um, in the post-1945, post-colonial era, the extension of territory across the world has in fact removed a lot of the causes of war a lot of the old jealousies and territorial disputes that used to be at the um, core of uh, large-scale warfare among rival states um, and in that way when we talk about the air quotes liberal order and air quotes the suppression of sovereignty which went on an international basis which went hand in hand with the enshrinement of an international hierarchy in which there were legally prescribed great powers with 
privileges and powers beyond those of other states, but also the sorting out of a huge notion of territorial claims and also the violent reshaping of population demographics to make to match those lines. Um, you know, the distinction between the European order pre-1939 and post-1945, uh, that also, you know, unpleasant as the process of creating it has been, uh, does, I think, look like a creation of a successful political order. Is that a reversible process, you think? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, you know, you study enough history and you begin to realize that all processes are reversible, but I'm not sure that it's a neat thing where, you know, you let those processes play out exactly in reverse and then suddenly we'll have, you know, an independent Virginia that is, you know, home to a sixth of the U.S. population or something. I, I think that instead identity being malleable in the long term, political attachments and institutions being malleable in the long term, you can have a process of breakdown. You can have a process of disintegration um, that yields something neo-reversible, reversible, if that makes sense. Um, you know, for instance, you you, know, you mentioned that you were born in the Soviet Union. That country doesn't exist anymore, but its process of disintegration wasn't reversed. It was you know, the the existence of Ukraine, the existence of Kazakhstan owe a lot to specific decisions, especially Kazakhstan, right? Like that is a country that Stalin created with a couple of intervening steps. Um, and that's something that's had a, a huge impact on the politics of Central Asia. Um, but it's not like the processes that created it were the same that brought it into the Russian or Soviet orbit to begin with. Mm-hmm. You know, the more I uh, the more I read history, the more I, I tend to uh, uh, favor the cyclical views of history because uh, everything breaks down uh, eventually. Uh, even uh, the polities that we think uh, are well run, uh, and there's a lot of dead states. You know, it's not just the Soviet yeah. Union; states die a lot, especially before 1945. We're again in a sort of unusual period historically, uh, where we have sort of we have sort of fixed uh, the border disputes. There's many that remain, but uh, not nearly as many as, as there used to be as a driver of conflict. And, uh, and the question, really, not to get too philosophical, is, you know, if war has always been the engine of history, the way we know it, and that engine stops turning now, you know, what drives history? What are we forced into uh, in terms of great power competition, uh, in, in terms of just the evolution of the order in general? Or maybe even that question is naive, that in 20 years people will say, these people really thought we were on a different level, you know, but it's back to the same. You know, you can read Keynes writing about uh, the world of before 1914 and uh, the, the, the first period of globalization. And it sounds exactly like something somebody would write in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, so there, I do have a sense of the, the, the cyclicity of history, well, which in a way, I don't know, is a bit depressing because it means we never really get anywhere. Uh, but I don't know. We'll see. I don't know. I, I find that interesting. You know, if we're taking the post-1945 or post-1989, whatever, order as being a sort of global constitutional order, a sort of global set of institutions like sovereignty, you know, not just the UN or the IMF, but sovereignty and territorialism, um, then it's unwinding 
should produce something that in some ways will resemble what became before, but in other ways could be very different. Um, you know, so my discussion about Kazakhstan, right, like that was not pulled from nowhere. Kazakhstan today is a territorially bounded, quote unquote, normal state, um, which has a distinctive society and so forth. But it is not in any way but historically a descendant of any polities that existed there. It is not based on, um, you know, it is sedentary, not nomadic. Um, it is not based on kinship ties, unless you're the president. Um, you know, there's a lot of things about that polity itself that are that are different. And, you know, the question about what an era of great power competition, you know, this thing that we're supposed to be entering back into now, um, you know, it's, it's very funny because you read the White House, you read the Pentagon's official statements about this, and you get the sense that, like, all right, we're going to have great power competition. What does that mean? Uh, that answer actually doesn't come, right? Like, I mean, we're, in, we're entering into an era of great power competition. Let's modestly increase the defense budget to $750 billion, which is a lot of money, but it's also just numbers on a spreadsheet. It doesn't actually, you know... It's it's not like the U.S. is gearing up to march into Moscow or gearing up to occupy Beijing. Um, those are just not really on the table. So, you know, these sorts of competitions, and, you know, obviously I've written with other folks, Dan Nexon, um, about different forms of performative great power competition, like wasting $100 billion to go to the moon. Um, but, you know, if those are the sorts of competitions that we're gearing up for, we're like, okay, like, We'll have really, really viciously fought Olympics. Um, some sectors of buffer states will have a very rough time. Um, but, you know, I like the idea that a lot of realists seem to be in for, which is that, like, the next 50 years are going to suck, but we'll be right because realism is coming back and, like, war and all these things. They're like, man, it'll be so nice to say I told you so to Helen Milner. <sighs> You know, like, really? You really think that, you know, the United States is going to, you know, annex another half of Mexico, that Canada is going to become the 51st of the 60th states? Um, I don't know. Like, I, I don't see how we get there. Uh, we might get back into a world of more radical um, autarky, but, you know, you know, the most realist state in the world is North Korea, and they're not exactly expansionist. <laughs> well, the bad news for the world is good news for realists. That's usually the case. And I say this with love as, as somebody. And inversely, right? Like, you know, John Mearsheimer has spent 30 years ruining the fact that the European Union exists. Well, there's a reason constructivist arose in the early 90s, uh, precisely because realists had no response to the Soviet collapse. Eventually, they managed to figure it all out. Well, partly, but but uh, absolutely, that's uh it's something we really need to reconsider what how much our paradigms will help us to understand the nature of competition uh, in the 21st century i mean yes the great power competition is not going away i think that that cyclical element of of politics will remain but what shape will it take place i think is an open question and people you know maybe it will all get displaced onto social media and we'll all just yell at each other through our twitter accounts uh the way some people have started but i don't know on that note, how do we factor in social media into this debate, into this power play and, and fight for political order? Well, I defer to my senior blue checkmark uh, colleague here. <laughs> there you go. Paul, we'll hand this over to you. 
with the blue check mark comes very little responsibility. <laughs> um, uh, you know, I am of six minds about this, so I'm just going to like randomly pick one of the positions, one of the many conflicting and contrary positions I hold, and then you guys can tear it apart and maybe I can get rid of a bad opinion today. But I actually think that social media moment to moment social to media social media might have some really terrible uh, consequences um but i think that that's a consequence of its immaturity and the fact that it is a new organizational form rather than anything latent in the form itself because the only thing that's really new about social media from the point of view of interstate politics is it slightly diminishes states ability to be authoritative sources of information and it raises the chances for individual policymakers or other people taken as spokespersons for states to send out their message without being uh, screened by lower-level members or by more responsible members of their team. So John Bolton or Donald Trump or whomever can spout off on social media, and because there's a lag between the discount rate that we should be applying to what they say and the power or the possibilities of that used to be re represented by official statements, we all overreact and it's all terrible. And it might lead to a nuclear war, you know, as with Trump's tweets about North Korea uh, back in 2017. But, you know, that's kind of a, a slight thing. You know, the bigger thing has traditionally been that, uh, you know, people would argue that the ability of activists and others to release information onto the internet would cause changes in state behavior because it would reduce the credibility of the state's arguments or because it would raise new issues for the agenda. Um, of course, more recently, we've seen that troll farms and others, uh, you know, as Henry Farrell and Abe Newman have argued, um, might reverse that process that it's easier to flood with misinformation or disinformation. Um, and so you might have corrosive effects. But I don't know. I mean, you know, is this really so much of a difference as, you know, happened with the printing press? Is it so much of a difference as what people were claiming for the CNN effect? Um, you know, you go back to the 20s and 30s, you know, Seva's read more of this stuff than I have. And people are all aglow with the possibilities of radio because of the immediate uh, link between leader and people that it promised to offer. And eventually, you know, there seems to be just as there's a... Um, you know, net wash in the actual price level. There also seems to be a net wash in the actual media level. Um, you know, the, that currency of social media doesn't seem to change the actual long run effects of politics um, in a way that I think is easily identifiable from the sorts of changes that social media is also being produced by, um, like the internet, like digitalization, like other sorts of things. So uh, I'm actually, you know, I, I guess I may be a social media truther. Um, you know, in the short run, things like Q, things like, you know, Donald Trump's account, they're really important. In the long run, I don't know, you know, even the fact that the United States has relatively free social media compared to China, you know, the Chinese internet is wildly censored and monitored and yet there's still some debate and you know also it seems to be a recognizable you know advanced country so i don't know chelsea can i play the soviet pessimist for a second <laughs> so, we welcome all opinions oh well so uh yeah look of course i think there's always trade-offs it's never uh social media is going to be good social media is going to be bad 
There's always trade-offs, even things like deep fakes. You know, uh, if you think about it, so uh, presumably, yes, deep fakes will create problems, but uh, it also means that, you know, if you're a dictator and you're trying to produce compromise, uh, if you're trying to produce compromising information on, on an opponent, who is going to believe that video you release of, of your opponent, right? So, so even though it may give them other advan- some advantages, it takes away other tools. Uh, I think that's absolutely true. But one thing that I, I think is a concern for me, at least right now, is this idea that social media does encourage the fragmentation of reality in the sense that uh, you, know, you, you, you will listen to people who agree with you, you will only talk to people who agree with you, and reality really does become fragmented in that way. And we see a little bit of that, that now. Uh, but more importantly, different regimes uh, benefit from a fragmented reality. Um, for example, if you're an autocracy, you might actually profit from the distrust, the cynicism, you know, all the social optimization that, that's created by the fragmentation of reality because it prevents collective action. It paralyzes mm-hmm. social movements. Uh, but if you're a democracy, you're actually, you need that uh, degree of social consensus, right? You need a shared belief in some common reality, right? And if that reality collapses, well, then democratic deliberation becomes much more fragile, and, you know, on the most pessimistic level, it's possible that maybe even democracy can't even function without this basic consensus, which, you know, I don't mean that you expect people to agree with you, but you do expect a sort of shared knowledge of what you disagree about. So let me and- just jump in here, because I think we should tell people that Seva's a little bit of a ringer because he has actually published an article about this. Um, which, that was which- a long time ago. Yes. Yeah, you know, political science, once it's published, it's valid forever. I mean, you um you know, peer review means that it's right, right? Um, yes, so I hear, yes. But let me, uh, just, let me push you on this, right? Because um, I, I think that you're absolutely right about the uses of information for autocracies. But when I look at American history and the history of most democracies, I'm not sure when the consensus period was. Maybe October 1955. Um, but we go back farther than that and you have everybody's subject to beliefs about conspiracies and mm. You know, there's a lot of things that are just uh, not particularly shared. I kind of wonder about the degree to which a deep epistemic set of agreements is necessary to a democracy as opposed to a more simple set of beliefs about the practices by which disagreements will be resolved. Um, And I'm not sure that social media quite changes, you know, the core metrics. You know, we worry about, you know, on social media that people will misuse uh, social media for electioneering or that – you know, the Russians will hack our elections with social media or whatever, but we're still talking about elections. I mean, this is not uh, something where the fundamental rules of the game have been set aside. Um, and in terms of media propagation, um, you know, I, I think that the single biggest force that has been driving epistemic closure, closure, closure is not social media, but Fox News. Um, you know, the, the legacy media in the United States is way more powerful. You know, the president's tweets get a lot of information, get a lot of attention, but he's tweeting, he's live tweeting uh, what he sees on Fox News. Um, And we're just getting his commentary track. Yeah, I think it's important not to magnify or to exaggerate the extent to which this this country has been shaped by social consensus. Uh, And this is partly why I push back against, and, and, and myself, but also many others push back against the norms people, that it's all about democratic norms, uh, because uh, the history of democracy is partly a history of breaking norms uh, and uh, sort of 
seeking to get away from that uh, stifling social consensus. So, I, uh, so you might be right. I think uh, at least in the short term, it seems to me that uh, social media amplifies these uh, these little tunnels, visions, these echo chambers, etc. Uh, it may be a wash. I mean, as you said, these are the same complaints people had about, you know, writing and, and the printing press, and 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 it doesn't seem to have had that effect. Uh, and ultimately, it may be just uh, too early, too early to say. I mean, I still remember when people thought Twitter was going to get rid of dictatorships around the world. So Moldova had the Twitter revolution ten years ago. You remember? Everybody, oh, I, yes. Anne Marie Slaughter was very big on this. It was going to be the panacea, right? So, uh, so there's never, you know, it, it's it's never wise to be too definitive. Although that's what gets you the the clicks and the views, but uh, but there's always going to be trade-offs. I think there's always going to be an arms race uh, in the way people use social media. That is between the government and the opposition, or within the government. Um, and to the extent that it lets you know the people know what people in charge are really like, it's a good thing. I mean, that's why I think it's good that. Trump uh, posts on Twitter. Because, you know, my view, my view of, of government is: look, the the worst people are going to be in charge, uh, even in a democracy, right? Uh, almost always, they're going to be terrible people in charge who are motivated by certain, uh, you know, personal motivations. So the best system we can really have is the kind of system that realizes those terrible people will be in charge and, and pits them against each other, right? And that's sort of the system that the, I think the founders had in mind, uh, sort of. Uh, I know, Paul, you're not big on the founders, but uh, but oh, that's... I'm, not, I'm not big on founder worship. I mean, you've actually got it exactly right. The founders thought that the best people would make their way to Congress and but then exactly that they would be checked and balanced, not by the institutions, but by their self-interest and their pursuit of the self-interest. And, you know, I think their institutional design course probably needed a refresh before they uh, went for all this. But you know, they did have a very clear eyed view about how politics work. Um, it's just that, you know, in uh, yeah, I, I think you may have missed the more overtly propagandizing grades in American education. Um, but, you know, um, the the um, uh, what is it? The young Octoberists were a spinoff of the Boy Scouts. And there's a similar amount of indoctrination about the wisdom of the founders in both societies. Oh, of course. Don't get me started. I, I did miss the American propaganda, but I got plenty of the Soviet one. I mean, I. I uh, I did I did not know that uh, Americans even fought in World War II until I came to the U.S. You know, because in in the Soviet Union it was all the USSR the whole way, and then Americans swoop in at the last moment. I, I that's think actually that's, a more accurate. Like, if you were going to drop a character from that uh, that television series, though, I, I, I think dropping the Americans from the <laughs> probably. You you still get the main bit, right? You Tom know, that, Hanks is going to be very upset at you if he hears this. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, we missed the subplot about France. Back to the main story, which is in Ukraine. Well, now now the Russians will love you. That's, <laughs> now you're now you're speaking their language. It's Victory Day. We should all be. We should all. We should all remember. That's right. That's right. So, in both of your opinions, how can we frame this subject and think of what creates a resilient political order? And is there actually really a resilient political order or is political order constantly shifting? And even though we have one country that might be a dominant power, eventually it falls down the ladder and another political order comes about. How do we understand all of this? Uh, well, I'll just, uh, if I could just say quickly, I don't have a good answer to this, but 
we have to be careful with terms like resilient because you know uh, the Mongol horde had a pretty resilient order. Uh, they were pretty good at running things for a long time, uh, but uh, resilience is not necessarily a sign that things are good. Uh, I mean, one thing that I think we should keep in mind is that the evolution of the order is part of the order, that to try to keep it static is not just unrealistic, but in some ways dangerous. A lot of problems in over the past 150 years uh, arise precisely from the fact that the people who feel they're running the order feel that the order is slipping away from them. I mean, that's the essence of power transition theory in some ways, to simplify greatly. Uh, so I'm not sure that we should wish for a resilient order. I think, I think we should wish for a flexible order, uh, one that sort of is able to accommodate those inevitable changes. Now, that, that all sounds very abstract, and that's because I don't know what that would actually look like in practice. Uh, the history of global orders is not yeah. great. And by the way, I would just say even the term global order implies the sort of clarity of action that is often missing. It's often something very messy and ad hoc. Um, if you read uh, memoirs of people in, from 1945, very few of them are sort of consciously building this global order. They're reacting to things. Uh, often in an improvised way. Uh, so again, uh, I think part of it is just being aware of the fact that it's it cannot be ossified, it cannot be set in stone. I mean, let me say that I, I agree with a lot of what Seva just said. What's interesting to me is I kind of ransack my international relations PhD training is, huh, we don't really talk about that. Um, realists don't talk about the resilience of the international order because they don't believe that there's an international order. And liberals pretty much believe that, well, if you make everybody capitalist or if you make everybody uh, liberal or if you make everybody democratic, the liberal order will be resilient, right? You can actually reach the end of history. Um, and this is, you know, other people have observed this, but there is a real parallel between the teleology of Marxism, Leninism, Marxism, and uh, liberal world order folks where, you know, eventually you'll just have the withering away of the state because there will be no more politics because the institutions will work so well to resolve conflict. Um, and I, I, I think that I'm also a little bit too pessimistic to subscribe to that. Um, I, th I think that's his point about resilience and stability and the enduring order of stability. Uh, those are really well taken. Um, I think that the things that tend to make an order more or less resilient, uh, depending on the game you're playing, can be more or less palatable. Um, there's certainly always going to be an element of repression involved because you have to repress alternatives in order to have stability. It just does not work any other way. Um, but you know, different kinds of repression could be scorn or ostracism um, or paying people off, or it could be throwing people in jails or worse. Uh, to eliminate or punish people who have deviant viewpoints. Um, so resilience at the liberal, uh, at the level of global order, um, you can have people being cut off from the benefits of being part of a system, or you can have uh, you know, the judicious use of intervening in sub subaltern states to keep them on trend, or you can have more violent or, or worse ways of enforcing those orders. But I'm not sure that we really have great theoretical answers from within the academic IR corpus um, because both of the two major misnamed paradigms really I, they, they really solve that question by assumption, which is uh, one reason why I'm not actually a super huge fan of a lot of the big theory IR theory that's out there. Um, because a lot, I think a lot of times it's derived from particular readings of history, and then they go off and 
theorize what happened in them, and then they go back to those pieces of history and they say, "Look, we found evidence for our beliefs." Um, and 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 yet that really leads to questions like, "Well, what would be the source of a more or less resilient order?" Um, you know, just as an empirical matter, the most resilient orders, the political orders that have existed, have been empires. Um, and that's not really an answer that people want to hear. Um, but, you know, if you look at even just in the realm of Western empires, Spanish, Portuguese, British, you know, we're talking about political orders that endured for a long, long time, um, much longer than the liberal world order, much longer than communist China or the Soviet Union. Um, and, you know, that involved a degree of flexibility, that involved a degree of coercion, and that involved a degree of inducement that democratic governments may simply not be able to calibrate over a long time. And those empires are still with us. You know, it, they've taken different forms, not to get all Marxist here, but yeah. uh, many of those elements are still with us. And perhaps one reason why the post-1945 order um, has been relatively resilient, uh, we'll see how long that lasts, is that it uh, allows room for those quasi-imperial ambitions and, in fact, encourages them through things like the free movement of capital, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so we may, be, uh, we may be coming back to more overt forms of that. I don't know. So to bring this, con- this talk to somewhat of a conclusion, although I feel like this is a really open-ended talk and that as things change within history, so does our perceptions of this idea of political order, especially on the global scale. Would you both say that the U.S. is a leading figure of global order, or is that something we can't say? And if so, what does the future hold for the U.S.? And if not, what does the future hold for the globe? Oh, boy. Big questions, I know. (laughs) Paul, you take it. Yeah, I mean, almost by definition, the United States is the greatest source of order and disorder in the international system. When you're the keystone in an arch, that means that when you decide to be there and be stable, you are holding up the arch. It also means that if you decide to absent yourself from that structure, it's going to collapse. And, you know, since 1991... as a lot of people, you know, very sharp critics of the liberal world order in academic uh, debates have observed, um, you know, the United States has not exactly been fully wedded to the idea of the political entanglements um, or the political commitments involved in a liberal world order. We're all these days talking about John Bolton as this, like, crazy deviation from American foreign policy means. But, like, first of all, he's what, advocating a hostile policy toward Iran and and intervention in Latin America? Wow, so unusual. Um, And also, you know, he served in the Reagan administration. He served in the W. Bush administration. Now he's in the Trump administration. It's almost like he's part of a social network, part of a political party that alternates in power with a more multilateralist or, if you like, soft unilateralist political party. Um, And... You know, there's a lot of times where, you know, when you look at the provision of public or other collective goods at a world scale, you know, public health, international aviation, and so forth, the United States is there underwriting those, you know, providing a third or whatever the global peacekeeping budget. On the other hand, when the United States cares to, it it declares a state of exception and invades Iraq. Um, and, you know, both of those reflect the fact that when you're the unipole, um, 
you know, the stability of the global system is to a large extent endogenous on your choices. And I think that the United States remains powerful enough, or even more precisely, remains convinced of its own power to the point that systemic incentives are not going to rein it in, uh, rein it in to the degree that some liberal order theorists have claimed. Um, and I, I think that that means that the United States is both, but not in an acute way, just in a structural way. Sava, do you want to weigh in on this one or just pass? No, I mean, I think, uh, first of all, it's hard to say anything uh, on the future of the global order that hasn't already been said. Um, and I think uh, Paul put things very well. I think the U.S. has been a source of both order and disorder, and that is not a paradoxical statement. Uh, in, in fact, it's been central to how the order has evolved. Uh, so, you know, we've seen situations before where a hegemon shies away from the role, uh, Britain refusing to run the international economic system in the interwar period. So it's not all structural. It's not just rise and decline. There's room for agency. Uh, you know, Gorbachev's choices led to the collapse of the Soviet Union, led to a sh total shift in, in order. So uh, I think there's, uh, there, there's too many factors in terms of the future of the U.S. to predict uh, what will happen with the global order. But one thing that we can be certain of is the future of the global order is tied to the future of the United States, uh, although there are many different ways that that relationship could go, whether in a negative uh, or a positive direction. And that's a very political science answer because it's sort of, uh, the answer is always, it depends. It's the most uh, common and the most unsatisfying answer, but I think in this case, also the correct one. To conclude the show, I want to give both of you a moment to maybe make a final statement on this topic or touch on something that we just haven't that you need to say. So I will hand over the floor to both of you. Well, I'll go first and let Seva have the last answer. Um, and that is that, you know, I, I think that there's a ton of important work being done by international relations scholars. Um, and I, I think that on the whole, the discipline, the debates in the discipline have gotten more sophisticated and more interesting than they were when they were just providing justifications for U.S. Cold War policy. Um, but that being said, I think that you know, this discussion even, which has, you know, been really enjoyable and really fun, um, kind of suggests that we have a ton more work and a ton more fundamental questions to even address. Um, and, you know, the fact that uh, Seva could write his book, um, you know, the book that I'm writing, um, about the deep relationships between domestic and international orders, where they've been sliced off and, you know, parceled into different parts of the political science discipline for so long, uh, really suggests that we are intellectually unprepared, not only for the sorts of political turmoil uh, that we've been discussing, uh, but also for the simple kinds of physical and uh, ecological turmoil that I think is going to mark uh, the lives of everybody on this podcast and, you know, probably of everybody listening. And, um, yeah, it's very hard for systems to pay attention to deep forces that are undermining their existence, but uh, you know, climate change and other processes really do pose um, fundamental questions. You know, if you have a territorially based world order and territory starts to disappear, what do you do with that? Um, how do you adjust world politics to those uh, those new claims and those new structures that are those new um, controversies that are going to come about? Uh, so those are the sorts of things that I 
spend my time, you know, when I should be working on other things thinking about. And, um, you know, even just the question about resilience, you know, we should have a better answer. And, um, you know, I, I, we can talk about what makes an order fragile, but, you know, in terms of a positive order building answer, um, you know, it's a little discouraging to me that neither of us had a really great answer off the top of our heads. Well, uh, Chelsea, do you want me to step in? Sure, that would be great. Uh, so, first of all, we should do this when Paul's book come out, comes out, and I can and I can comment it because from everything I've read of Paul's, I think it's going to be a, a fantastic book. Uh, secondly, on predicting the future, uh, you know, I think it's okay that we don't have good answers to this uh, because. Uh, to have a good answer requires some degree of hubris, I think, mm-hmm. uh, especially because, and we do this even when we know we do this, we tend, to, a lot of the times we tend to think linearly about the future. I love going through past predictions about the future. Some, you know, and it's not that they're always wrong, but even the ones that are right or wrong, they, they think in linear terms. So you see things like, you know, from the early 1900s, there's, there's this predictions that zeppelins will be everywhere and zeppelins will be parked at the Empire State Building. And that's because that's when zeppelins were becoming very popular, so there will be more zeppelins in the future. But uh, there, there's exogenous shocks, uh, technological shocks, uh, political shocks, environmental shocks that we just cannot take into account. Uh, and uh, it's completely true that uh, international politics might be completely different in 50 or 100 years due to things that we're only beginning to really consider and incorporate into our theories, like environmental change. Uh, and one thing, you know, if, history, if the history of political science is any guide, we are deeply influenced, whether we know it or not, by the prevailing social consensus, by the prevailing issues of the time, uh, sometimes in very deep ways. And uh, partly because we're sunk into that, you know, and we try to climb out, uh, we can never really tell what will happen in the future. But uh, one thing that will be for certain is that uh, we will need new ways of thinking about the global order. We will need new ways to think about international politics and uh, how these intersect with domestic politics because, as we mentioned at the very top of the show, you know, that distinction is increasingly meaningless, uh, both for practical policymakers and for people writing dissertations. You know, it's becoming harder to draw that line. And ultimately, I hope that's, that's a healthy thing for the discipline, even if it's not necessarily a sign of uh, an improving uh, world. Well, I think that's the perfect way to end this show. And thank you so much for coming on the Loopcast, Seba and Paul. And for our listeners, do check out Seba's book, Aftershocks, Great Powers and Domestic Reform in the 20th Century. And hopefully, Paul, when you have your book out soon, fingers crossed, we can readdress this issue and start up a new conversation. Sounds great. Yep. Thanks for having us. Thank you.